So today's passage will be from um, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Please turn with me. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Please follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Bible, Behold, I send my message to four new things, who will prepare your way, the voice of one kind of the Lord is. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his heart set. Jonathan, baptizing the wilderness, proclaiming the baptism of repentance, and forgiveness of sin. And all the work should be there, and all your riches were going out to him, and will be baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mighty enough, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Hello, uh, good to see you all. Uh, if you don't know uh, who I am, I realize I've never kind of introduced myself up here. My name is Paul, um, one of the pastors here at Kingsway. Um, and it's a pleasure for me to take us through this next series, which will be, um, as you probably know, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, so this Gospel um, is the shortest Gospel of the four Gospels. Uh, it's only 16 chapters. Uh, in comparison, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is 28 chapters. And so we're going to go through this uh, short gospel, but uh, even though it's only 16 chapters, I'm guessing that it will take us roughly 40 weeks to go through. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend maybe a couple of months here in Mark, and then we're going to pause it. We're going to go talk about something else for a little while, then we'll come back to Mark. Right? So we're just going to bounce back and forth uh, on Mark and then off to a different topic. Um, and maybe we'll finish by the end of the year, or maybe by the end of next year. Uh, we'll see. Um, but it'll be fun. Uh, so this Gospel of Mark, as the name says, uh, a lot of evidence, especially from the early church fathers, uh, confirms that it's uh, written by a guy named Mark or John Mark. Uh, he wasn't actually a person who was with Jesus. He's not a disciple. Uh, but uh, he heard these things from the Apostle Peter. Right? And so he's writing down what Peter saw. Uh, Mark shows up uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, he's a helper to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and there's a kind of funny story. He goes on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, but then he bails on them. And so then the Apostle Paul and Mark, their relationship gets a little weird. And then when the Apostle Paul goes on another missionary journey, he doesn't want to take Mark. Right? He's kind of like, he's, he's flaky. Right? He might bail on us again. Uh, but what's awesome is that at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, uh, he talks about Mark again in Philemon and 2 Timothy, and their relationship is restored. Right, and so they figure it out, which is cool. And he says uh, in 2 Timothy, he's helpful to me in my ministry. Right, and that's about Mark. And so, I don't know, that's kind of sweet to see uh, Christians uh, make up. And now, as I said, Mark is one of four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right? They're the four Gospels. And the four Gospels uh, are kind of like biographies of Jesus. Right? Each are coming from a different perspective talking about the same person, talking about the same things. Uh, sometimes there are stories in one that's not in the other, uh, but just kind of coming from a different perspective and focus. And Mark, as I said, is one of the shorter ones. 
Uh, we call them the Gospels because they talk about the good news, which is what Gospel means, the good news of Jesus. Now, the Gospels, including the Gospel of Mark, therefore are kind of historical books. Right? So we believe that they're written in a specific time and place about real people. Right? And I talked about that maybe a month ago. Uh, it's a narrative. So it's a story following you know, across time this guy named Jesus and what he did and what he taught. And it's theological. Right? We're going to learn about God through uh, this Gospel of Mark. And Mark likes to focus on a few things like who Jesus is, uh, what Jesus tells us to do. And one of the main themes of Mark is uh, calling us to follow Jesus. Right? So as we go through the Gospel of Mark, uh, I want you to think about whether you are following Jesus, right? whether you will follow Jesus, and what's stopping you from following Jesus. Right? So that's going to be the call. Will you follow Jesus and obey him? And so, as we begin the Gospel of Mark, it begins with uh, these words. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so again, this Gospel is about Jesus. So are you ready to get to know this Jesus? Alright, let's jump in. Mark 1. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but for me, I find it interesting. Verse 1, it's very clear. This is about Jesus. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And it's like Mark is saying, are you ready to get to know Jesus? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about John. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. aren't you going to tell me about Jesus? Why are you starting off with this guy named John? Right? Because that's what he's doing. In verse 2 to verse 4, right, all of that is about this man named John. Right, so the first point I want to talk about is why John? Why does the gospel about Jesus begin with another person, this man named John? Now, it feels a bit weird at first glance, but uh, when you think about it, this is quite normal for God. Right, throughout the Bible, God works through people. Right, specifically, God, not all the time, but most of the time, God works through people to make himself known. Right? In the Old Testament, God works through you know, prophets and priests and kings and leaders to show to other people himself. Right? There are times when God himself shows up, when God himself speaks, but most of the time it's through people that God reveals himself. He sends someone so that that person talks to other people and says God right? and shows him. Right? We see this even after Jesus in the rest of the New Testament. Right? Jesus is going to send his disciples and they're going to go out to tell other people about Jesus. And so it's not that weird when you think about it that the gospel of Jesus begins with another person because that's how God tends to work. It tends to work by using people to show himself. Right? So that those people will go out and say, let me tell you about God. Right? And that's not much different from even today. God wants to show himself to the rest of the world but his instrument is the church, right? It's you and me. And we are meant to go out to tell people about God and Jesus. 
So that's what John's actually doing here. He's going out to tell people about Jesus. I want, I want to read verse 2 to 4 again. Verse 2 is a prophecy from the Old Testament. And it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, that's an Old Testament book, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, back in those times, when a king wanted to enter a city, uh, what you didn't want to happen is that along the way, that there's like rubble on the road, and the king has to sit there and wait while people clear the rubble. Right? You wouldn't want the king to enter the city and for the city to be like, oh, what, the king's coming? And they're not ready for the king. Right? You, you'd, you'd want the, the path to be made clear. You want the city to be prepared. And so in order to do that, like, you couldn't just pick up the phone and be like, by the way, we're dropping by. You couldn't send an email. You have to send a person, right? a messenger or a herald. And this herald would go first. Right? Before the king arrives, they'd make sure the path is clean. They'd prepare the way. They'd go into the city and they'd say, the king is about to arrive, right? Everyone get ready. Maybe put on your best clothes. Right? So he would prepare. He would proclaim to the people the king is coming. And then he would point everyone to the king, right? Who is about to arrive. And that's what John is doing here, right? Not, not in a literal way, but in a very symbolic, in a theological way. He's here preparing the way for people. And not to clear the rubble on the road, but to clear their hearts from the, the barriers that stop them from receiving God. He's there to proclaim to the people, right? It says that he proclaimed uh, a, a message of repentance. So he's telling the people, right? Get ready, repent, turn. And then he ultimately points to Jesus, right? Literally to Jesus when he shows up. Right? Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Right? That's what John is doing. Right? He's the herald. He's the messenger. And so that's why we find John here. Because John is the herald. He's going first. So the world is prepared when Jesus arrives. Now that's not just true for John. I said before, that's also our role as well. Today as a church, we kind of function as heralds. Right? God wants to reveal himself to people, but he sends us. And we go and we prepare people's hearts. Right, so that they might you know, be ready to get to know Jesus. And that might be praying for people. That might be uh, you know, meeting up with them and talking about the things of faith. Or it might be showing them love or serving them, but in some formal way, God is sending us so that we might prepare them so that their hearts might be ready to receive Jesus. We also proclaim. We go to work maybe and we talk about our faith. Uh, when the opportunity arises and we feel bold, we, we unpack to them who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? We share the gospel with them. And ultimately, like John, we point people to Jesus right? so that hopefully he will be able to enter, not into a city, but into their hearts. Why does the gospel begin with John? Because God uses people like John and like us to herald the way. Right, so let's learn a little bit about who this guy is. Right, who is John? Here's some basic information about John the Baptist from a few places in the Bible. Uh, by the way, uh, this John, John the Baptist, is not uh, the disciple John, right, one of the twelve. Right? It took me a while to figure that out when I was a new Christian. Uh, they're two different people. You've got John the Baptist and you've got John the disciple. 
Now, John the disciple, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. That's a different guy, right? This is John the Baptist we're talking about. Now, John the Baptist, he was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah, his dad, was a priest. And one day he was in the temple um, and an angel appeared and the angel said, uh, you're going to have a child. Now, the, the kind of problem was that uh, they were both really old. They were about 60 to 80 years old. Right? And so they're like, well, what's going on? But obviously God can do the impossible and they have this child, this child named John the Baptist. Or his name's not John the Baptist, his name's John. We call him John the Baptist because we get confused with the other John. Now, even while in the womb, uh, John was special. Uh, the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he gets old enough, he does something weird when most of us might, you know, um, go, go study or go look for a job. He goes to the wilderness. And I, know, I think he kills a camel somehow or something. And he, he dresses with a camel. He starts eating bugs and honey. Uh, but he basically gives his life up to serve God. And he starts preaching for people to repent and to be baptized. Now, one of the things that stand out for me when I think about John is what Jesus says about him. Later in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. Now we all know not all compliments are the same. Right? If, I, if I drew something and, like a child, my son said, whoa, that's really good, you know, that, that's not that strong of a compliment. I mean, I mean, it's nice, but it'd be different if, like a famous painter, maybe your favorite painter who's world-renowned looks at your painting and says, whoa, that's good. Right? That kind of compliment means a lot more. And so Jesus here, right, God the Son, the greatest person to have ever lived, he says, John the Baptist. Apart from me, John the Baptist is the greatest to have ever lived until this point in time. Now, what a huge compliment about John. Now, what makes John the Baptist so great that he would receive that kind of commendation? Now, from our passage, there's three things I want to point out about John. And these three things, at least from a human perspective, they f- seem pretty great. I feel like in general, people would have seen John and because of these three things would have said, well, maybe this is why he's great. Let me just go through these three things. Number one, uh, John was first. We see in verse 2 to 3, I talked about how he fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah and also Malachi. Now, prior to this moment in the New Testament, God has been silent for 400 years, right? I, I talked about this uh, not long ago. God hasn't been visibly active for 400 years. Between the old and the new, uh, it feels like God has kind of disappeared. But as God begins to act again and move again, it's John's parents who are first uh, spoken to by an angel. Right? Mary and Joseph, they meet an angel too, but they're second. It's, it's John's parents who first encounter an angel. It's John who breaks the 400 years of silence, right? It's him who shows up on the scene and starts preaching in his weird clothes and eating weird things, right? It's him who's there first. And as I'll mention in a moment, he is a somebody when Jesus is a nobody, right? He's already there, right? He's already known. He's already a somebody, right? So he's first. Now, if you've ever scrolled through YouTube comments, 
you know, people really like being first, right? It's like always like it's first, and there's like five people who think they're first, um, and it seems to be a big deal to us. No, but also like when you just kind of like seriously think about it, being first matters. Right? If you're a technology company, right, the company that's able to you know kind of be there first to fill up a, a, a need in the world, often you know that matters, and they they become big. Or when you want to like, wear something in terms of fashion, you, you kind of want to be first because so people are like, oh, wow, where'd you get that, right? You know, being first seems to matter to us, right? And John is first, right? After 400 years of nothing, he's there on the scene. Number two, John was famous. Let me read verse four to five. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. So John's going around and he's, he's kind of preaching a message that's hard to swallow, right? Repent, you're sinners, right? If you read Luke chapter 3, like, it kind of fleshes out what he says. It's kind of like, oh, you're just surprised that, you know, people actually want to hear what he has to say because it's quite harsh. Despite that, though, it says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, right? As the cool kids would say today, John was trending, Right? He, he went viral, right? not, not viral as in sick viral, but viral as in seek. <laughs> sorry about that, I just had to, I just had to say that joke. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, you know, like he, he was famous. Like, like back in the pre-internet age, like people knew about John and they were flocking to him over at the River Jordan. Right? John had a mega church-like following, even at this stage. That's an incredible thing. He broke the 400 years silence, and I'm sure that mattered. Right? People were hungry to hear from God. Maybe his fashion, right? wearing a camel, like, was like, oh, what's going on? Right? And so people would go out to see him. But regardless of the reason, he was famous. And number three, John was fruitful. Verse five, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Some churches attract a big crowd but have little fruit. Some churches have a little crowd but they have big fruit. Right? They have few people but there's a lot of change and transformation happening. And if you have to choose between a big crowd and little fruit and a little crowd and big fruit, you want that one. Right? You want the fruit. You don't just want a lot of people, but you know, they're just coming in to check out what's going on, but you know, they're not really committing to God. But John's ministry had both. He had a big crowd and a lot of fruit. So there's a lot of people flocking to him, but it wasn't just, oh wow, that guy's wearing a camel, that's weird, and they, they check him out. But there's a lot happening. It says that people were being baptized by him, and they were confessing their sins. God is at work in all of these people that are coming. That's incredible. Imagine a startup that has these three characteristics, a company that is first. They're able to leverage technology and information to fill the need. And people are like, whoa, why didn't anyone ever think of that before? And this company is, is famous, right? Everyone knows about, hey, have you heard about this thing? You know, download it on your phone, right? And it's kind of spread and everyone's talking about it. Everyone's using it. And they're fruitful. They have a lot of daily users or they're making a lot of money and they're skyrocketing right, in, in terms of the, the revenue and expansion. Any company with these three characteristics, we would look at it and we would say, 
that's incredible. Or that's great. And John has all these three. And from a human perspective, right, for us, right, it's natural to look at John and see these three things and say, well, maybe that's why he is great. Because he was first. Because he's famous. And because he's fruitful. And what I'm going to say is, that's actually not why he was great. These three things aren't bad, but ultimately they're not why he is great. And when you think about your life as well, right, we often chase being first or famous or fruitful, but that is not what makes us great in the eyes of God. And so number three, what did he do? Now, this is my last point. You know, God doesn't measure greatness uh, in the same way we tend to measure greatness. God's not impressed by the things we tend to be impressed by. We read in 1 Samuel, uh, the Lord said to Samuel, back in the context they're trying to pick a king right, to lead the people of Israel, the people of God. And God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Right? I've rejected that, that guy. He, he looks good, he's tall, right? but that's not what I look at. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Often we tend to, as humans, we, we gauge success by the outward appearance, by what we see. Right? We're impressed by a person's right, work. Right? What, what do you work? Oh, you, oh, you do that? Wow, wow you're great. Their position in the company, right? Are they at the bottom? Are they at the top? If they're at the top, wow, right? you're great. You, you, you impress me. By how wealthy they are. The kind of house they live in, the kind of car that they drive. Right? These outward appearances tend to impress us. They seem to gauge for us what makes someone great. But these things don't impress God. Right? These things don't make us great in the eyes of God. Again, John was first. He was famous. He was fruitful. And we look at that and we think, here is a great man of God. But that's not what God sees as greatness. Despite those things, John was great. So what made John great? Well, we see in verse 4 to 6 all these things that were going well. But it's in verse 7 where we see his greatness. Verse 7. It says, He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is what makes John great. John's phrase, the strap of whose uh, you know, sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, that, that's a big statement. Because back in those days, you know, at worst servants, but maybe not even them, uh, would stoop down to untie someone else's sandals. Right? No one wanted to untie anyone's shoes because you know, their feet were dirty, it was considered unclean. Right? You, you wouldn't let anyone do that. And yet John the Baptist, when he compares himself with Jesus, he says that he isn't good enough to do what other people think they're too good to do. Right? No one else would be like, oh, I don't want to do that. And John's saying, no, I don't deserve to do that for Jesus because that's how great he is. That's how humble John is, and that's how Christ-exalting John is. And so what makes John great? This is my kind of one-liner. What made John great was that he was willing not to be. Now, this is a paradox. 
But what made John great was that he didn't chase greatness. He didn't chase the, chase the fame or, you know, he didn't chase, you know, the things that would make him look great. But greatness in God's eyes is a humble person willing to lay themselves down. Someone who's not selfish or self-centered or self-exalting, but someone who is Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. Right? That is greatness in God's eyes. So what made John great was that he was willing not to be great, but was willing to lay aside his own greatness and make Jesus great. I said in the first point that John is here at the start of the gospel because he's a herald. He's someone who prepares people's hearts. He proclaims to the people about Jesus, and then he points to Jesus. But if you think about it, that would have been a really hard thing for John to do. Because, again, he had enjoyed worldly success, right? Well, the world says that's greatness. It would have been so tempting for John to, you know, in the height of his ministry, to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. It's about me. To not just be like Jesus, but try to be Jesus. You know, try to be the Messiah. Try to be the one that he makes his life about. And as people are flocking to him, maybe for, for the pride of success to get to his head and for him to think, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm the man. You know, in fact, people went to John and thought that he was the Messiah. That was already in people's minds. That's how big of a deal he was. People thought that he was the savior to come. Can you imagine people coming to you thinking you're a savior? How much power you would have? How much fame you have? You would just be like, you don't even have to say anything. You just like keep your mouth closed and they would think that it is true. They just subtly kind of affirm it. Man, you'd be treated so well. They'd look at you with so much kind of honor and respect. In a way, it's like the first point I talked about and the second point, they they come to like a a clash. John is here. Why? To be a herald, to point to Jesus. But who was he? He's a really successful man. And so which of these two will he choose? Right? It's not that you always have to choose one over the other, but for John, it's, it's I'm here to make it about Jesus. But people think I'm pretty good. Right? Which one will I let go of? Maybe I won't make it about Jesus and I'll make it about myself. And I'll enjoy Right, all this success. But that's not what he does. So what makes John great is that he kind of lays himself down and he sacrifices. Instead of preaching about himself, he preaches about the one who is mightier than I. Right? It's not about me. There's someone who's way better than me. Again, Luke and John record that people think that John is the Messiah. But John chapter 120, right? not John the Baptist, but the other one, he says that John the Baptist confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Right? That repetition of the word confessed, it's like he, he really told people. NIV says he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Right? He made sure everyone knew it's not about me. I'm not the Savior. Right? Don't come and um, put your life into my hands because I'm just really, he says, I'm a voice in the wilderness. In John 1.35, we see John the Baptist basically giving his disciples away right, when Jesus arrives. He's like, he's the Lamb of God. And his disciples leave him and start following Jesus. Right? He's giving up his followers. And at the peak of his ministry, John is happy to give it all away. So much so that in Matthew 11, when Jesus says that comment, right, no one is greater than John, John is in prison. 
He's all alone. He's basically got like no followers left. And fairly soon he's going to die because he's going to get beheaded. Right? That, that's the end of his life. The, the guy who was famous, had it all, right? everyone knew about him, right? now like no one is thinking about him. And it's interesting in these verses, it's such a contrast. Jesus in verse 1 is going around, he's teaching and preaching. John's there in prison and John is hearing about Jesus. Because right? now Jesus is famous. Now people are talking about Jesus. Right now, he's the main thing. And John has kind of receded into obscurity. But he was happy to do that. That is what made him great. Right? Imagine you had everything, but you're willing to give it away for Jesus. Right? How hard is that? John ends up being a mere preface to the story of Jesus. He's just a few verses at the start of the gospel. The, the book could have been about him, but it gives it away. Right? That is greatness in God's eyes. An orchestra conductor was once asked, uh, what's the hardest position in an orchestra? orchestra? And everyone expected uh, him to say the first violin, because the first violin apparently is, is the most like, kind of important. They, they lead the rest of the orchestra. Uh, everyone's looking at them. Everyone's you know, paying attention. Are, are they going to mess up? But to their dismay, he claimed the second violinist was the most difficult position. And when asked why, he said it's because the second violinist plays just as well as the first violinist. They practice just as long. They play just as flawlessly, but they get none of the praise. And that's John the Baptist. He's the second violinist. And he's happy to be the second violinist. He fulfills his role very well. So much so that none of us really think much of John the Baptist. He plays the, the harmony to Christ's melody, right, invisibly. I said before that you and I, we are also called to herald Jesus. We are called in our lives, if we're Christian, to prepare people's hearts, to proclaim to people about Jesus and point them to him, right? To make much of him and thereby in the process, not make much of ourselves. To like, be like John in the sense that we kind of make it all about someone else. And for those of us who've succeeded in life, that can be a bit hard. Because what happens with success, right? Kind of like it would have been like for John, right? It, it distracts us. We might begin to be prideful and think that, oh, maybe we're pretty good. Maybe I'm pretty awesome. I'm quite incredible. And we like that people look to us and you know, honor us and exalt us. And success can lead us to not point to Jesus, but end up pointing to ourselves. Right? Whether it's the, the things that we buy or, or the things that we chase, right? that we will begin to desire centering our lives on me. Right? And that's quite common. To live for myself so that people would look at me and think I'm great. You know, failure can be difficult, right? Failure can be difficult, but success can be dangerous because it distracts us from pointing to Jesus. And so I want to exhort each of us to be like John. That's an interesting thing to say because usually we say, be like Jesus. 
But in this case, we should be like John. Because John became a nobody. Right? Jesus wasn't meant to become a nobody. But like John, we should become a nobody. Right? Someone who points to Jesus in our everyday lives. I want to encourage you to regularly pray and ask God to keep you humble despite your successes, to give you the strength and courage to herald Jesus and not herald yourself. And if you're a parent, maybe that means the way that you you teach your kids, the way that you model prayer, that you'll point them to Jesus, to show them grace when mistakes are made, in humility, apologize when you make mistakes. As students and workers, there are countless of ways we can herald Jesus, Again, when you go to work or you go to university, maybe quietly pray right, for the people that you know. Bring up the topic of faith. Bring up the topic of church. Maybe invite them. Or if the moment arrives, tell them about Jesus. But also, especially for those of us who serve in church, for those of us who lead in church, right, when ministry becomes successful, when the thing that you're leading goes well, Right, even for us, it's tempting to get puffed up, to think that we're pretty good, right? to take the glory rather than give it to God. Right? I invite us to really fight to remain humble and herald only one name, right? herald Jesus. Let me end with a story. This is a story I've, I've used before, but it's like, it's like perfect, so I'm going to use it again. Uh, in early high school, I slept over at my friend's house and... Uh, we went to go like borrow a video i think it was a video i don't think it was a dvd if you don't know what a video is uh, it's like this thing that anyway um there used to be these things called video stores and you'd go and you'd pay money and you'd borrow a video we borrowed this video my friend chose it um because he liked the actor steven seagal he, he's like this old action kind of movie star. He was big back then, and so he was like Steven Seagal. And I remember he, he like on the cover, it said uh, Steven Seagal. He had his face on the cover. It's actually what it looks like. Steven Seagal is the guy over here, and it says under there, executive decision, Steven Seagal. And so we borrowed this movie, and um, we were watching this movie at his home. We weren't even past the first third of the movie. So like this is right at the start. You know, this is when they're just introducing the story, uh, you're understanding what's going on. You're getting to know the characters. And there's this scene, like, first third of the movie, where they're in a plane, and it gets hijacked, and the, they need to get out of the plane. So another plane, a second plane, kind of arrives underneath the first plane. They create this tunnel between the first plane and the second plane, and they're going to escape down the tunnel into the second plane, right? And so everyone's scurrying down the, 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 the tunnel trying to get out, and Steven Seagal is the last one to get into the tunnel to escape. And he's in the tunnel, and suddenly the tunnel begins to break off. Now the problem is, if the tunnel breaks off, both planes will explode. Right? So he has a choice. Is he going to try to get down through the tunnel into the plane? Or will he sacrifice himself? And that's what he does. He, he closes the hatch beneath him, so everyone who's gone down can escape, and he's in the tunnel. And in a moment, the tunnel breaks off, and that second plane flies away, and Steven Seagal is in this tunnel, and he flies off into the distance. Now, this is like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the movie. And we're like, wow. But we know what's going to happen. Right? Because he's going to come back. They never kill the main character of the movie, right? It's like, we're just waiting. Like, he's going to return maybe in the middle, maybe at the end. We're just waiting at the edge of our seats. I mean, his name's on the movie, right? His face is on the poster. 
So we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. We're just waiting, like, literally throughout the whole movie, and then the credits start to roll. And he, he doesn't show up. And we're like, what? what? We, we, grab the, we grab the cover, we're like, didn't it say Steven Seagal? But he never comes back in the movie. No, no. The, this is interesting. This is the Blu-ray edition of the movie when they re-released it. <laughs> they, they got rid of him. Because they knew it was false advertising to, to even have him there. Now, here's the thing. I think that's what uh, your movie and my movie should be like. Right? If they made a movie about our lives, it should be like that. That even though your name is, is on the poster, that your, your face may be there, uh, that we're not the main character. That maybe early on, we just kind of receded into the background. Maybe we died to ourselves, that's a Christian phrase. And we made someone else right, the main character of our story. Right? That's what John the Baptist did. Right? He receded into the background and he made it all about someone else. He made it about Jesus. And the Christian life is to not make it about ourselves. It's to make it all about him. Right? Make it about Christ. Right, that's a challenge for us today. Right, let's close our eyes and let's pray. You know, it's a big call to make our lives about someone else. It, it doesn't feel natural. And, you know, the, the sinful nature within us wants to be recognized. We want to be acknowledged we want to be exalted in the eyes of the world but as we look at this minor character it seems john the baptist uh, we see what true greatness is in the eyes of god to be great in the eyes of god is to not be great uh, to not chase self-exaltation but to make it all about Jesus. It's incredible how far John the Baptist was willing to fall from the height of his fame and fruitfulness to become a nobody who dies in prison. Can we come before God and ask him to give us the strength to lay it all down for his sake? To live for Jesus, to not make it about ourselves, but to make Christ great. You know, if you're not a Christian here, you know, this sounds kind of absurd. It sounds back to front. And yet, you know, the Christian faith really is a lot of things are back to front. You know, one of the things that are back to front is that Jesus, who was God, he died on the cross for your sins. Right? God, who was perfect, loved you so much, he would sacrifice himself for you so that you may be forgiven and loved by the father and that's back to front as well but this is the beauty and wonder of the gospel and so wherever we are let's come before god and lay our lives down and make christ the centerpiece of our lives why don't we spend a minute or two uh, making that our prayer just fighting to make that you know our confession even though it's hard and the praise team will then lead us into a song we can't sing uh, because of the restrictions uh, but with your heart and your mind, uh, will you make those words uh, your confession to God as well? So let's pray.